And now, from somewhere in the Houston Midtown area, it's the Sit Down with Slick Vic. Welcome everyone, it's the Sit Down with Slick Vic. I'm here with the special guest today. Uh, haven't seen you in a while, man. Uh, I met this guy many moons ago, Justin Boyer, um, director of uh, marketing for CoStar, I believe. Yeah, director of marketing links at CoStar. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, director of marketing at CoStar. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate it. We're coming to you live uh, from, uh, I'm not going to say where, but actually from his uh, home um, in Houston. Um, great, great. Uh, Kind of a loft, industrial style. Very nicely done, sir. Appreciate it. Um, a little bit about, about yourself. I, I'll start off by just talking about when I first met you. Um, that was at the at MDA camp, correct? Yeah, it's a camp for all. We were, uh, it was, we were counselors for the Mus- Muscular Dystrophy Association, right, MDA. Um, that was one of the most like rewarding experiences in my life, I would say. Just to kind of give, for those of you not familiar, um, it's kind of it's a camp where kids with muscular dystrophy go and kind of for a week, and you're basically assigned uh, as a, like a camper and you're a counselor, and it's, you do all these activities for them. Uh, and I, I mean, I thought it was an amazing experience. Uh, really, really uh, kind of changed my perspective. Saw things a little bit differently after that. Um, what about you? Did you get something out of that experience? Was it something that uh, kind of stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, Camp for All in Brigham, Texas is an amazing place. And they make it where kids from all different backgrounds, all kinds of disabilities and chronic conditions can have a normal camp experience for a week or two. And so, yeah, it, it gave me a lot of perspective. There's a lot you know, to be grateful for and just to see the gifts and everyone, and it was just it was just a really wonderful and rewarding experience. That's kind of I remember um, meeting you there, and we kind of saw each other a little bit after that. But then there was like a long gap, and we kind of would see each other periodically throughout the years. Um, talk about a little bit what where you where that journey took you after that. I know that was like uh, when you were still in high school. But then I think, believe you went to uh, Tulane, correct? Yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey. I was at Tulane studying in New Orleans, and uh, you know, had a liberal arts undergrad, philosophy major. Took some business classes, took some liberal arts and some Spanish. Uh, ended up working in, in capital markets for a little bit in New York uh, for a friend's firm there, and then uh, came home, got my MBA at U of H. Helped start the real estate program at U of H. Go Cougs. Go Cougs, whose house. <laughs> and then uh, I did a one-year master's at Thunderbird in Phoenix. And then I worked for JLL for three years, too, in, in Panama as a, as a regional consultant in Latin America. And then about a year with Halliburton in their Global Acquisitions Dispositions Group. Uh, and then I was at HFF for three years as their head of research in Houston. And I've been with the CoStar Group ever since. That is quite a resume, sir. It's a bit of a journey. <laughs> it's a long and winding road there. It's uh, certainly the road less traveled. Um, it, talk a little bit about, is, is that something uh, when you were young that decided you wanted to take, or did you have different aspirations and at some point you made a shift? So that's a great question. 
growing up, I would see Gerald Hines buildings here in Houston, see the Transco Tower, the Galleria, see skyscrapers downtown. And my dream has always been to be a real estate developer. And I think like a lot of people looking for work, you kind of go where you can get a job. And for me, uh, initially that was in, uh, in real estate finance as a broker. And then later as a, as a, as a tenant rent broker and consultant in the corporate solutions group at JLL. And then in research and analytics, and I've been working in research and analytics and my, my career has taken a different but interesting turn. I, I never would have thought I'd be working in tech when I look back on my career, but uh, who knows what the future holds. You know, maybe one of these days uh, I'll, I'll go back to the, the development investment route, but for now I'm really quite enjoying the work I'm doing. Um, you, you mentioned analytics. Um, would, would you say, the current role you have now is something that has kind of been a more recent development, a role that has been created due to the fact that we rely so much on technology and numbers. Absolutely. I mean, not that long ago, before the dawn of technology like we see today, people were recording rental rates and vacancy rates and property data by hand, by in, in books. And it's just amazing. I mean, CoStar was big part of that revolution and now there's just such vast quantities of data that it's become a vocation to, to analyze that data and apply it to understanding real estate markets, understanding the economy and helping investors and decision makers make uh, even, even more informed decisions based on what the data is saying. So I think it is a, a much, it's, it is a pretty recent phenomenon the way that it's grown. Now, currently, um, we're obviously living in the, the age of COVID, right? I'm assuming that we, this, this kind of, you know, messes up the numbers, right? The numbers are no longer normal, right? It kind of delivers like a, like a wrench into it. Um, have you seen that some, you know, come, come to fruition? And what, what, have, what are you guys doing to kind of make those adjustments on the fly, really, right? Well, uh, Lucky we millennials, right? <laughs> They're not only the COVID crisis, but also the global financial crisis. Uh, so it's been, you know, two pretty severe downturns that, that we've lived through in just a short 10 years. And so, yeah, I think fundamentals get affected in a, in a very crazy way. Right now, we're seeing some of the worst job losses we've ever seen since the Great Depression. And But what's interesting to see is that while the industry at large is hurting uh, in, in most parts of the business, not every property type has been hurt the same way and not every city has been hurt the same way. So what we've been focused on is that you know, cities with a large exposure to tourism, like you think of Orlando or Las Vegas, some of the coastal cities, they've been really negatively impacted with the loss of tourism and any kind of tourist destinations, uh, hotels have been pretty negatively impacted. That's probably been the asset class that's been the most. And then retail after that, um, particularly food and beverage, but soft goods, but actually industrial is doing super well because of e-commerce and how everyone's ordering on more. Right, right. And a huge surge we've seen in that. Um, so, and then apartments, we've seen a big jump in apartment rentals, but in the suburbs, not so much in downtown areas. So it's it's kind of a, a mixed bag of what's how it, this is impacted. I mean, is it safe to say that 
the system has to somehow remain balanced, right? So even though things might decrease in one end, it's going to just force other that increase to go into into other markets, right? Yeah, I, I really think that this is a pretty temporary phenomenon, and I'm, I'm hopeful that with the mass vaccinations that, that life will be back to normal in Q2 or Q3 of, of next year. That's So you'll be the first one in line? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, they say it's gone through all the, the, the right FDA approvals. I'm, 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 I'm in the, the trusted camp and take my chances. I realize not everyone feels the same way, but uh, yeah, I'm, I guess I'd be first in line as, as I can be. I mean, uh, do you? I mean, you, you might just look at it maybe for, for uh, like a health perspective, but do you, you? I mean, I think I don't know. You might have a better answer than me that if if the vaccine does work and they're distributed on a mass basis, um, that would kind of get things going, right? If if we kind of have that fear lifted about going out, about you know, spending money. Um, what would you, what, what's your opinion if, if that does come to, to happen? Yeah, Victor, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's the markets are all driven by fear and greed, and real estate's no different. It, it's so driven on consumer behavior and consumer confidence. I mean, after 9-11, people were saying that no one's ever going to want to fly again, and that certainly turned out not to be true. After the Spanish flu in 1918, People said that cities are dead. Manhattan's dead. No one's going to want to live in cities. Well, cities have only redensified since that time. So I do believe that once people feel safe to go out into the world, that life will return to, I say normal, but certainly a new normal. I mean, things aren't ever going to be the same in certain regards. Uh, but for the most part, I think that this will be temporary and that we're going to want to be around people again and be social again. When I look at, you know, how people always look at, well, COVID affected these numbers, right? More, more of a monetary perspective. But I don't think there's enough focus on, on like the mental, the, the, the mental strain on people who have not been able to have that, you know, that weekly or bi-weekly meeting uh, with their friends at the bar, or just having that type of emotional outlet. And, um, what what have, what have what have you done uh, personally? Like what um, to kind of deal with all, you know everything that's been going on, and, and have you have, have you shifted to working remotely? Have you been more uh, working from home? Yeah, I mean, uh, this the world faces an enormous health crisis, enormous enormous mental health crisis, in addition to uh, COVID because of the lockdown, and it's it really is something all of the, the consequences of, of the actions we take. I, I feel for the majority of folks that have been, I mean, I feel for everyone who's been negatively impacted by this. But I also feel for the policymakers that have to grapple with these major decisions and sort of the byproducts that it has. We have been working from home. So CoStar, in our major offices, our plan is to go back, the earliest would be March or April. And we are spacing out desks. There's going to be new air filtration systems and new plexiglass and new procedures. And then we're going to alternate in, in some cases, our office here in Houston, we might not be going back till could be May or June. So luckily we're a tech company. And so we've been able to do most of our work uh, from home. And what have I done to, to, to get through this? I mean, I've always had my quarantine crew, uh, you know, my tightly knit group of friends here that I've, 
would periodically see or reach out to. I've made a point to have regular calls with friends. Luckily, I have my family here, and so I've been just trying to keep up the conversation, even though I can't be with as many folks as I was before, and trying to exercise more and just get some fresh air and you know think positively. You know, you talk about uh, having those 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 constant calls with, with, with people, your your family or, or, or close friends. Um, I'm sure that your business requires a lot of like Zoom meetings, right? These video calls. So you you're used to it, right? You're used to doing them. You're, you're used to the the format. Um, so other people might not that don't you know do that for their job might not be as familiar, might not know about it. I was actually talking to a friend of mine because we have like a, a weekly. It's uh, three close friends of mine. We have like a weekly call that we do. And we talk about anything, right, and everything. Because the experience that technology now offers, it almost feels like, you know, we're in the same room, um, even though we're not, right? Because, you know, we can see each other, we can hear each other. If you have the right audio equipment, I mean, you can really, really hear each other very well, HD camera. You know, I just recently got into the corporate world, and I just got hired in October, right during COVID. So I'm like going back to this ghost town. <laughs> you know, it's like there's not many people there. Right. But you were there before COVID. And now you're there during COVID. And you're going to be there post-COVID. Um, what would you say for you is like the biggest difference of working from home as opposed to working from the office? That's a tremendous question. So, <laughs> so, so when, I, when I came into this role, and, and I've seen some ups and downs in my career too, and I'm, you know, I, I feel for what's going on, and, and, and i certainly the way I experienced past crises, both the, the shale bust and the financial crisis, I was impacted in those. It's by sort of a fate that I ended up in a tech company that I'm able to be productive during this, which is a blessing, and I'm, I'm super grateful for that. The, the thing that I, I that I miss the most is being with people in person and advising clients in person. You know, that's the joy of my job. That's the X factor. Not as much as I love creating content and covering markets. I'm like any advisor would be like a, like a lawyer, a consultant or banker or someone. I, I really enjoy this. I enjoy being with, in a room full of people. I enjoy being in a room with, with clients and kind of just talking through what they're seeing in the market, what they're seeing in their portfolios and how they should strategize. So it, it's gone from that sort of human element to more of a commoditized, you know, here, let's, you know, we're, we're, we're creating more content than we ever have, but we're missing the human element. And that's what's tough. You mentioned that technology has come so far that you can feel like you're in a room, you, can, you hear like you're in the room, but there's no substitution for being with people. And that, that is what I look forward to when we're on the other side of this is getting back to. You know, now that you mention it, um, I think a good, like for me, um, maybe you can relate to this. Uh, like when I, when I, when I, I'm in, I'm in a group, this group of people and we're brainstorming, right? And you, and you're, you're literally in the same room so you can kind of see each other, the facial expressions or kind of just see them pacing around. It's, it's more intimate. You, you can you get like the body language cues there and, and you know I, I, it's not to get religious or anything but I do believe in like like energy mm -hmm. 
I agree. And that can be sensed virtually, right? It can be sensed if I'm in a different city or just miles away. But if we're in the same room, uh, we can communicate more efficiently, right? And and that I think that we both agree is something that has been lost. It's a it's a body language thing. It's an energy thing. You're exactly right. And there is something that's missing. It's it's more two dimensional when you're looking at a, at an image via video. There's just something that's that's not quite there. Uh, it's it's a good substitute. I would say that as much as I've enjoyed seeing my more of my team on video. Uh, it's funny because you know first we had video calls two times a day and then we had one time a day and now we have it once a week and it's great having that check in with the team and just seeing everyone and talking about our weekends and what's going on but in general with you know teammates with clients you know I think a lot of video calls can be audio calls <laughs> I think we've gone the opposite direction we feel like because we're not at the office we now need to be in front of each other on video all the time and I'm, I'm, I think that's kind of an extreme reaction. I think it's okay to, for something to be over email or text or audio. Yeah, no, I mean, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it, it, it takes time to, it takes time to make an adjustment to, like, that gets, it gets forced upon us. Like, this was not something that yeah. was planned. This was forced upon us. People were all of a sudden, there, were, there was an announcement saying, okay, everybody, I mean, don't come to the office. Um, just don't, what do you mean? Don't come. Don't come in. You're still getting paid. We're going to send you some laptops. We're going to figure this out. Oh, I, I I feel for the heads of our organization to try to figure this out. We so CoStar. Here's here's the snapple fact. We're the second largest research organization in the country after the U.S. government. Wow. Something like three thousand researchers, most of whom are in Richmond, Virginia. And so to take that entire infrastructure and move it to VPN. Oh, wow. Virtually overnight was a massive oh, undertaking. It was almost like an emergency. We had to bring in, you know, consultants and, and folks in your line of work to just to completely overhaul our systems and boost bandwidth to make our company not crash. You know? So, they, so you guys weren't even set up for this? We, we had some extra bandwidth, but we... Not to prepared to capacity. Not we were not prepared to take five thousand people offline, and I would I would venture to say probably a lot of uh, a bigger companies, some our size, some that are many times our size, but weren't weren't either. And so you know, it's funny. I think there was this kind of you know, how do we trust our our, our folks to be productive? You know, how often do we need to check in? How often to make them feel like they're connected? There's also this kind of holistic concern of we don't want people getting lost being home all the time and to feel, you know, to feel disconnected from us. So I think we're all in this learning process together and have had to adjust to COVID together. Well, you mentioned it, um, you talked about production. So um, one, because I haven't, I haven't had the pleasure, as I say, because I haven't done it, of working from home. So one thing uh, maybe you might have some information on is, has, would you say that the level of productivity has stayed constant? Has there been some increase, de decrease, or, or what do you what do you think uh, has has happened with with you know in, in general? Without you don't have to throw anybody under the bus. You know? no, I, I'm just I saying it's a great question. It's a great question. I love answering it. In our in our line of work, so so within CoStar, CoStar Group is an umbrella that has many companies. So Apartments.com, people have probably seen the Jeff Goldblum. Commercials, oh, yes, yes, yes. you know, uh, 
Brad Bellflower, the best place to rent a place. The best place to find a place. And there's LoopNet, um, there's, we just bought STR, there's, there's, there's several lines of business. My group is the, the market analytics group within CoStar. So when, when companies subscribe to our, our service, they get data, they get analytics, they get news. There's a lot of things that are part of that. Our group creates the content. We create the submarket and market reports. We've increasingly started doing more news articles and, then, and now we've shifted to doing videos. And so we used to go, so we started this year doing videos, having all our analysts produce quarterly videos. We'd all fly to Boston or San Diego or LA and shoot videos with a whole film crew and everything. We've also had to, like a lot of folks in the video journalism sector, take that offline and shoot them in, in our living rooms, our bedrooms, our, you know, in my case, my, my study right here. And I think, from my understanding, and we have metrics around this, our group has actually been more productive during COVID because people are bored and they don't have anything to do and they're under the gun. And so when you're not spending an hour to three hours a day commuting, you know, taking a designated lunch break, if you choose to do that, interacting with your coworkers, which so much of us, like myself, like we miss, um, they're just like less distractions. So I think our group has been actually a lot more productive working from home during this. Um, you mentioned analytics. Um, when I think of analytics, you know, I definitely think of numbers. But were you somebody who has a very, uh, like, like a math background, you know, like you're a numbers person, or are you more of an interpreter of the numbers? So I always joke that the two classes that I hated the most in college were economics and statistics hmm. and now I'm an economist who studies statistics <laughs> so I guess that's kind of how it works sometimes but what we what our group mostly does we rely heavily on the work that our research team does and the data and the the, the data and all the property information that they put together and we layer on top of that an analysis of what the, let's say, downtown Houston office, how it's performing, or how the city of Houston overall, it's the industrial sector is performing, and at the national level, how is, how is retail nationally in the United States performing? And we'll have reports and videos that complement what is fed into the system by our research team. So, so just so I'm clear, uh, the focus is mainly on it's also like an acquiring real estate for, for corporations, correct? Or is it more than that? So I guess analytics doesn't mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And in our context, and certainly we have quants in our Boston team that write algorithms and they're, they're creating our forecasts that are baked into our system and are kind of in real time automatic across all the markets, all the submarkets. So they're the math PhDs who are doing the hardcore heavy lifting of the math end. For us, it's a fancy word to say that we're analyzing markets. We're market analysts. And we're, we're looking at what, what's happening with sales transactions, with leasing. Um, hmm. What are the main drivers? So our clients, they are a mix. So we have a lot of investors and they range from your uh, you know, local private investor to a sovereign wealth fund uh, or life insurance company. We also have Brokers are a big part of our business, brokerage companies, 
JLL, CBRE, those kind of uh, Cushman, Colliers, those kind of big companies. And, um, and then we also have appraisers and just anyone, banks, anyone, lenders, anyone that interacts in sort of the real estate transaction ecosystem it would be a subscriber to CoStar. And that's different from apartments. Those are apartment building owners who are using our service to advertise. So it's really kind of a big mix. What, what would you say, um, I mean, because th that's a lot of data, that's a lot of different variables, but right now, it being kind of a transitional time in history, um, there seems to be this, uh, this, this blossoming of, of like the younger generation having like this, I mean, and, and it has to, you know, the fact that the internet exists, the fact that everybody has a voice, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of trending towards manipulating many systems, not just the system that you work in. But how is this, this like transition affecting the market? Is, you know, is there more, more of a shift towards, like what, what's, what's trending? Are people trying to go downtown? Is it more about people are afraid due to COVID that, hey, let's get away from these inner cities? What, 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 what is happening? What is, what's, what, what's the people thinking now? Yeah, so, so there was this big new urbanism movement that everyone was talking about, that, that millennials want to live downtown in urban areas because it's cooler, it's more convenient, and then all the live, work, play, trans-oriented development, all that kind of stuff. And then the baby boomers caught on, and the recent retirees, they started moving downtown as well. What we've seen it, is that as millennials enter their prime home buying years and start having kids and start thinking about public schools and education, millennials are largely moving to the suburbs like every previous generation. <laughs> You're smiling. <laughs> well, I, I, I did it. it out I did, yeah. just did it two months right. ago. Right. You, you know, I'm still a bachelor, no kids yet, but I mean, that, that's a very worthwhile consideration for a lot of folks. And now even the suburbs have gotten a lot cooler. So you see in Houston, like the woodlands and Sugarland that have developed town centers and become more kind of having many pockets of, of urbanism. So while there's always been this talk of everything's about the about the inner city, they're really we're still seeing we're now seeing record home buying, mostly in the suburbs. And and I think a lot of that is because of COVID, but I think that trend was already happening prior to COVID. It's just how millennials are aging. It's second largest group behind the baby boomers. And also, like, if you look at office, everyone's saying, oh, you know, if you see, everyone sees, like, Google and Facebook and all the big tech companies are going downtown. Fine. But if you really look at the numbers, the vast majority of the, the absorption of the, the demand since, like, the last crisis, 2010, has been in the suburbs. It's still been big suburban campuses. You think North Dallas, you think Silicon Valley, uh, Houston, the energy companies. Companies are still building big campuses in the suburbs, so the suburbs are not dead. That's the point. Yeah, and then when you factor in that downtown only has so much real estate to mess with to begin with, right? It's more expensive, it's becoming pricier, um, it's lacking the affordability uh, that that people really need, particularly since we've just gone through two major crises in the last 10 years. Affordability is very important to the consumer, the average consumer now. Uh, and it's on almost everyone's mind. Yes, I mean, especially because now 
you know, companies are moving to the cloud, to a cloud infrastructure where you don't have to have a physical server room or you don't, you don't have to have, you know, all these cubicles and all these offices because you have people working remotely. So let me, I mean, let me, you, you said it, you said that your team is working well, that things are working well. You know, if, if I'm a business owner and my employees are working fine and doing even in, in some cases better than they were before working from home, my up cost is down because now I don't have to pay to, for their offices. Everything is better for me. Do you see that this could be more of a, a permanent thing in some instances where people just say, you know, they milk it. They might say, oh, I still don't feel comfortable. Oh, I still, and then also they're just like, well, you know, look at our productivity or look at this, look at that. And they're just like, you know what, fine, stay home. <laughs> Could you, can yeah. you see a scenario of that playing out? This is something that we grapple with a lot. And I sit on this, we have these property sector calls and, and, and I'm in the office one for CoStar. We meet pretty regularly and we talk about these same issues. And that's the biggest one that we keep talking about. I think we're all going back to the office. If you have to be perfectly honest, I think once this is over, we're all going back. Why do I say that? Yeah, what's the big... The, the what's big the driver? Thing? What's the driver? So... First of all, all these tenants are stuck in these leases because they usually sign them for three, five, ten years. That's true. Yeah. And so even though people aren't physically there, these companies have still been paying. For them. <laughs> so they can't easily get out of it. So a lot of the big companies they've started putting more space on the sublease market. And where we've seen big increases it has been in places like the Bay Area. The tech companies were way overvalued going into COVID and they were facing a reckoning. Something whether it was COVID or some other thing that caused the crisis, was going to cause a reckoning for the tech companies. But it's not just tech companies. AT&T was already going to work from home. Um, you see like Uber is giving back space. But then you see like Facebook and Google and other companies that have been leasing even more space. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. I would say that companies feel like their employees, generally speaking, are more productive when they can collaborate in person. At best, I think we'll go to more of a hybrid model. They see how well that people can work from home. So it's something that needed to happen. Because I can work just as well from home, for instance, as in the office, maybe even better, potentially. I think that there are a lot of people in that boat. So I think most companies will go back to the office, but then there'll be some more flexibility about working. It's yeah, like downsizing from space, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I think... Um Especially if if the lease is a big factor, then eventually that lease does expire, right? And you could then switch to a hybrid model where you could, you know, go to a smaller office and have maybe uh, alternating crews or whatever to limit the capacity of that smaller office. And yeah, have more people working from home. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely could. And so real estate being... Sometimes it's the largest business cost for business. And you saw that companies went from offices to the open floor plan and started cramming more people in to save real estate costs. That was part of it. Hey, millennials, we know you love fancy you know, amenities and ping pong tables and kegs and whatever, and you want to be in the nicest building. Okay, fine. Well, we're going to move into that nicest building, but we're going to reduce our footprint by 25, 35%. 
and, and there's been all kinds of studies that that wasn't good for like productivity. It wasn't good for like germ transmission and things like that. So now with COVID, it might force a, a companies to actually take on more space so they can spread out. Mm. We're seeing that with a lot of companies that are leasing more space just to fit the, the COVID social distancing requirements, moving desks around and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think it's quite feasible that a lot of companies will reduce their real estate. And, and, and offices might take on more of a conference room, collaborative spaces where we have an auditorium or meeting space, but then you can go do the majority of your work from home. I think that definitely can become a trend. I worry about co-working. What do you, what do you mean co-working? So uh, like WeWork and, and uh, you know, spaces by Regis. So, so, so these, these companies that, that created this space that was kind of on a monthly office model, where you can go and it's a communal space, cafes, and you could go and, and it's sort of like you know, good for startups and, and smaller oh. businesses. Although you had, um, they started consulting for larger companies to do WeWork type space. That stuff has really suffered because they people are crammed into a small, relatively small space. And it's for all the reasons why social distancing is tough. It's, it's a very social environment. It's intentionally meant to be social. So that's been really hurting a lot, and I worry about I worry about the viability of that model going forward. But again, it's just like going to a large music festival or a concert. Once we get past our fear of being around people, maybe those fears go away, even from like a coworker. You know, you talk about going to a concert, um, which I love. Same. That's <laughs> yeah. my favorite thing. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> Whether you're going to a heavy metal show and banging the hell out of your head, or or you're just sitting there quietly during the opera performance, whatever, right? It's something that we all love. Um, you know, we're, we're we're fortunate, I think, that we. I love living in Texas, and although I don't agree with all the, the mentality, the the anti-maskers and all that stuff, we're not going to get into that. Um, <laughs> I do like the fact that we still have some type of freedom, right? We're not like California or New York where it's like shut down. You have to have a kind of different perspective, right? And, and then somebody maybe in your shoes from the LA office or the New York office, right? Um, let me ask you, in, in your meeting, do you meet with people in other states where you might say something and they're like, oh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's not like, it's not like that's in LA. But you're like, yeah, but I'm in Houston. Like, oh, you're a Texas boy. <laughs> it's it, it's, it's just be anti-masker. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? There's we get labeled because we're from Texas, or you know, and that's got to have some type of effect uh, on on how y'all communicate and maybe on how you strategize moving forward, right? I I, I just love this question. This might be one of my favorite, <laughs> this might be my favorite one of the whole so far. So yes, we're headquartered in DC. Uh, politically, we're a very liberal organization. I make no bones about it. I'm independent. I'm bipartisan. I'm always for trying to go for a balanced approach. Let's work together. Let's collaborate. And yeah, since the beginning, we've been weighing this. Let's you know protect the greater good, the health of the greater good, and, and you know, versus these large ec- economic sacrifices. We're lucky in Texas that we're not as dense as some of the the, the establishment coastal cities, New York, San Francisco. Etc. And so, even if we weren't as strict, our numbers might not rise as high because we're not 
interacting with so many people on a daily basis, given our geography and our layout. But yes, it is something that we struggle with because we're based in D.C. Uh, we there is it is a tech company. There is an overwhelmingly liberal culture, and I and I and I laugh about this because I mean some of these some of the major seaboard cities have they're huge real estate markets. They're gateway markets. Everyone looks up to them. This is the center of the universe. You know, D.C., New York, Boston, San Francisco, L.A. And, and at first, I think there's a difference between what people were willing to deal with for a few months versus what they're willing to deal with for a year. And it's actually been, been tough for me to see. At first, when I saw what New York was doing, I thought that they were really handling a, a really awful situation given their, their extreme density versus the rest of the country. And then as time went on, like we track open table reservation, restaurant reservations data. You can see that all the same cities, they virtually haven't reopened since this all began. You're right, at least in Texas, in Florida, you know, folks can criticize how our, you know, I guess our purple governments have gone about this, state governments have gone about this, but at least we've had some sense of normalcy. So yeah, you ask, has it been funny at times? It has been funny at times because you know, there's been times when I've said that I'm going to meet with a client for lunch one-on-one. And that was a, <laughs> as a bit of a faux pas, you know, or I'm going to go have a cocktail with three <laughs> people. And in other markets, this is like, I might as well be just wearing the tea party flag. I might as well be just running around and spitting in everyone's face. I mean, this was... This was unconscionable that I would sit down with my former boss in a socially distanced environment. And it's funny because I don't blame anyone for their, their views. And I think ultimately it's good to err on the side of caution, but we've got to take a balanced approach with this thing or else we're going to be in even more pain than we already are. You mentioned mental health. and We haven't talked about it, but the economic consequences. You've got to balance the COVID concerns with the economy. You're, you're, you're you know, a man of numbers. You study the numbers. Um, do you think, I mean, we, we can't, from, from what I've heard, and you can maybe back it up, we can't, we can't take another, another hit like we did before, right? Like, that was, that, that hurt the, the, the market. <laughs> we barely could have taken that one. <laughs> exactly. It's the largest stimulus we've ever injected into the system both in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, I don't think we lost as many jobs during the Great Depression, from what I understand. Um, and on a percentage basis, it's also pretty close. So, well, we definitely need another round of stimulus. So I really hope that that's getting passed. And, you know, we might even need more help. Again, if we continue to lock down, the only way that this country is going to stay afloat is stimulus. And... You know, that just adds to our national debt. And so I think there's all kinds of pros and cons to this thing. And, you know, now I see that, that Houston ranks third in the nation for evictions. Great. So around Christmas time, we're throwing people out of their homes. They haven't been able to work in uh, eight months. This is a really tough situation here. And, and what a $1,200 check isn't going to make up for eight months of lost income. I don't care how you slice it. But this is insane. And then and now we're gonna throw people on the street in what? Because 
Anyway, now I'm going on a political rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, now, now we think I'm very conservative. <laughs> I know. I'm not. <laughs> I, was, I was more going to focus on, we mentioned it earlier, right, where there's a decline in one area, but there's a rise in another. So unless there is some type of bailout or people are able to overcome, because like, like you were saying, like a lot of people are facing evictions. And ultimately, unless something happens, a lot of people are going to lose their homes, which means there will be open real estate. When you see stuff like that, like it almost feels like, without getting into too much of a conspiracy, like that was kind of set up because you hate to see some somebody capitalize on somebody else's misfortune like that. You know? But it's, I think the human mind wants to try to make sense of these huge cataclysmic shifts, these big paradigm shifts. And I think where it's most glaring is you see that, you know, businesses that were labeled as essential were, you know, like your large conglomerate stores, your Walmarts and Targets and grocery stores. It's interesting is that you couldn't go into a, a restaurant that seats 10 people, but you could go into a Walmart or you could go into, a, you know, an HEB. <laughs> I mean, it's just hilarious to me. Uh, and, and I think people are really upset that there wasn't as much credence paid to capacity of the physical space. So, okay, we're going to let folks go into large stores because they have to get their basket of food and milk and bread, but they can't go into a, a jewelry store that, that five people can be in at a time. I, I think that, so I think what, the statistic I saw recently is something like half of the businesses or more in this country are small businesses. And those have been the most disproportionately impacted and you see it in cities. There was a big thing where there was a production company in LA that had their big outdoor uh, seating, but across the street you had bars and restaurants that all had to be closed. And so I think people get really upset when they see these, these rules uh, distributed unevenly to different people in different types of space. You know, I say if we want people to not gather in a certain size space, then we don't let people gather in a certain size space. It shouldn't matter if it's, you know, a, a large company or a small company. Let's just apply the rules evenly. Make it fair. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, I agree with you, you know. It's like uh, like putting a salary cap or something on everybody. You know? <laughs> Make it fair, you know. Um, so one thing that we've kind of, you know, touched upon is the ever-changing uh, climate and so, uh, people and having these, you know, uh, people in LA and New York having these different perspectives because of how COVID has affected them. Do you feel like because people have the ability to communicate to millions at a time that the blending of corporate America with political America is starting to kind of fuse a little bit more than before because, or was it just kind of a like post-election uh, shockwave that's still kind of because of it was happening then and now maybe it's died down or is it something that might continue to rise? I think our history, I think our country has a long history with business tied to politics and the sort of the, the lobbyist government that we're in. 
I think that, that the reason that some of these big companies have gotten sort of a free pass is that we've allowed these companies to get as large as they are. Now, I'm not going to go on a soapbox about anti-monopoly and that kind of thing because I work for CoStar Group, which is a company that has amassed a pretty significant uh, a dominant position in our industry in terms of data. And, and now the, there are FTC concerns about our viability. I would say, like, for our case, it's very difficult to build a research infrastructure of 3,000 researchers. And we've had competitors that have tried. And so the government's going to make efforts to, to determine if companies, you know, are too big, uh, for instance. But in the financial crisis, we bailed out all the banks. This time, we bailed out all the airlines. So yes, our U.S. government has gotten more and more and more involved in business in a very direct way, and that's essentially socialism. We don't, we don't call it that, but, but that's what it is. I think that, you know, you look at Amazon. Amazon has been a tremendous beneficiary of the lockdown, because now people who didn't even shop on Amazon before are buying on Amazon left and right. And just e-commerce in general is just absolutely boomed. And people are streaming more. People are on their phones more. And so Netflix has done well. And you know, television has done well. And, you know, Apple. And, but, uh, you know, where's the little guy in all this? We've allowed companies to get too big. And I'm not going to sit here and argue if that's a bad thing or a good thing. But that seems to be the case. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard finding that fine line, right? Because you you want competition. You, and you definitely don't want to dissuade anybody from, from, from competing and, and producing a better product. And so, you, yeah, you do want... If this company worked hard to get to where they got, do you really want to punish them for that? So, yeah, it does, it does get into kind of that, that area of, well... You don't want them to get too big, or but do you want to take away that motivation? I mean, Walmart is, we didn't, used to not have Walmarts. Right. right. We never had stores of that size and that breadth. And, but they're essential. Like if, if the world's ending, you know you, where you're going to go to get stuff. It's going to be Walmart or uh, Dick Sporting Goods or, you know, one of those. And so I think it's just a function of, that's, that's just a, a long-term evolution of, how these companies have grown. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned it earlier when you said that the smaller companies were affected disproportionately. A lot of them didn't make it, right? They, they have not, they didn't make it through this, this COVID. And it's almost like the big companies are just swallowing them up, like the blob, you know, just swallows whatever gets in the way. And it's interesting. I mean, what, what do you say uh, is going to be the major impact, the major effect? To, to the real estate market with everything going um, remote. Like that's the, are we going to see more infrastructures? So actually, I was going to say this earlier. I, I, I would have to imagine that the majority of real estate currently, especially when you look at urban um, or even like um, just older buildings in general, um, like they're not designed to, they don't have the infrastructure for, you know, high speed data flow internet. So you're definitely going to have to see some new modeling, right? An increase in that just to build these 
or redevelop these uh, these structures to handle remote offices. Mm-hmm. Um, 5G. 5G. Yeah, they have to put the antennas through all the buildings. Um, have you started to see any any anything uh, for like the real estate market? Like, where do where would you say? Um, what trend is, is, is affecting the real estate market when it comes to this new technology-driven, remote-driven infrastructure? So we've seen a huge increase in the value of data centers and telecom REITs. So it's really interesting because all the attention for investment in real estate is focused on you know, multifamily apartments, uh, office, retail, industrial for the most part. Industrial and apartments have very much outperformed uh, this cycle compared to office and retail have struggled quite a bit for different reasons. We've had a, we have a lot of older office product and then retail because of e-commerce and how that's changed the landscape. But people continue to rent apartments. There's been a lot of positive tailings apartments for industrial e-commerce is just in home, you know, home building. And that's just been a huge, huge growth area. But Data centers and telecom companies have outperformed all of those by a landslide. And that's just pure data usage. And that's just pure iPhone, cell phone consumption, streaming, more working from home, more, more online. So I think there's a ton of opportunity in, in, you know, in that realm. Uh, and we'll see a lot more data centers. What I wonder, though, is that about data centers is even though their demand for data centers is growing so much, the technology changes every few years and their needs shrink, right? So they won't need as many servers, so then they reduce their footprint. But the overall, overall, it's a huge accretion of, of demand. Yeah, I mean, even though, I mean, I mentioned earlier, right? Everything's going to, to the cloud. So yeah, you're gonna need these server farms to be able to handle them. Um, and you're right, technology, you're always going to, the microchip, the processors are going to get smaller, smaller, smaller. Um, but the information is going to get larger, larger, larger. So in order to handle that, what I understand is that going forward, there's going to be this big push for edge computing. And it might be more of a hybrid model where you have increased cloud needs, but you're also going to have increased needs for sort of mini data centers closer to the consumer and maybe tied together with cell phone towers. Um, and so that's sort of in its infancy, uh, but you could start to see some interesting like boxes pop up around urban areas to try to accommodate increased uh, flow of data. You know, was, um, the other day I was on the freeway and uh, I, looked, I looked over and there was this, this, uh, this like van and I look over and there's, there's nobody driving it. I was like, what the hell? And then and I forgot the name. I, I, I would have to look it up. Uh, the name of it that was on the van. Twilight Zone. And I, I, get, I get to my, I was on my way to work. And I get to the office and I Googled it. And it's this, this automated delivery vehicle service. This, this was on the freeway. And I was like, wow. How long has this been happening? How long have these robots been on the freeway? That is crazy. I've still yet to see that. I know Kroger launched a, they launched a remote delivery and automated vehicle delivery, but they decided they were going to keep drivers in them for a while. So all those you see driving around, they have drivers. I have yet to see. That's really interesting. I was on, uh, I was on, I think I-10 
So that, that could be one of those vehicles that maybe it's being tested. It started in California. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they, they have to Cross test country. it. Exactly. Yeah. If, if it's going to eventually be a fleet, you have to have like your beta, right? The, little, the tester version of it, see how it goes. But that, 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 that freaked me out a little bit. It's a little so, terrifying. Um, I wasn't Dis- ter- disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a tech guy. So, you know, I'm a guy that, you know, I see, you know, Neuralink being like the next crazy step forward in human evolution, if that's what you want to call it. If, if in a way it is, it is a type of evolve, evolving, even though it might not be a biological evolution, it's still a type of evolution on how we're going to communicate and how we're going to, you know, do day-to-day activities. I mean, to the day that we blend, you know, humans and computers together perfectly, or even 50%, I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah. It's like Matrix stuff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like, like Internet of Things. and, and uh, it's So I heard a thing a couple years ago that some of the bigger publicly traded companies developers, they're, they're no longer building parking garages that can't be converted into some other use. So instead of like the ramps and right. they're building a flat level so that they can become buildings at some point because they are envisioning a world in which everything is uh, ride share or everything's autonomous vehicle. And I guess we'll see how far the, it goes with these uh, autonomous vehicles because I guess there's a lot left to be able to figure out. There's there's a sort of an ethical argument. Okay, if, if if you're confronting a person crossing the road, do you slam into this car or do you just go straight ahead and hit the person like that kind of stuff? That needs to be worked out. That humans can make that those decisions and have to be accountable for them. But what about robots? No, no, you're right. You're right. Um, do you believe that? You know, we're we're obviously moving towards more more automation. And, and there's, I forgot the name of the website, you go to it and it kind of gives you a percentage of different <laughs> careers that are going to be, you know, be you know, wiped out. Um, do you see that as a positive, as a negative, or just you, you have to deal with it? That's, that's just going to happen. So, so there's an amazing New York Times article that I read recently that there is actually a lot of job growth occurring, uh, well, this was pre-COVID, uh, and, and I believe it'll come back post-COVID. But a lot of the new jobs that are being created in the United States in sort of this post-industrial world that we're in, where more services oriented, were healthcare jobs because of the aging population of baby boomers. And a lot of them were for nurses and technicians and jobs that weren't traditionally viewed as masculine. And so you have this whole issue in the country where even though there are all these openings, a lot of men don't want to be nurses. And, you know, they're used to using their hands and being in manufacturing lines. And so there ends up being this, this skills gap. I'm not here advocating that everyone should go become a male nurse, but, it, you know, they are high-paying jobs. So, And, and it's, it's, there's not, it's, it's the stigma. Right? It's the stigma. There's nothing to be ashamed 100%. Um, my my cousin, your jobs. Yeah, my cousin decided to do that, and, and who, yeah, who cares? Like, you you're you're right right there with the doctor. Right? When when my you're making money. Yeah, and and, and you're 
you're very valuable. You're you're, you're a healthcare worker. <laughs> you're an expert in the human body and, is there and any, healing people. Is there any job that's been more valuable than a healthcare worker this year? <laughs> no, right. <laughs> right. I mean, Absolutely not. So so that's part of it. I am concerned about automation. My hope is that this automation leads to let's say that there's a shift in resources and then it leads to creation of other jobs. My concern is that, so in, in the past where there have been these major shifts like to the combustion engine, there, there, there have been these big technological shifts where every single time someone said, well, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> this is going to eliminate everyone's jobs. And then because of the, the, the advent of the car that opened up all these other production. My concern is that our biggest growth by far in this country is tech. It is the only sector, for the most part, that's carrying the S&P 500. And it's increasingly dominated by four or five firms. And we have, since the 1950s, very much shifted from a manufacturing-based economy to a services-based economy. I'm not saying anything that most people don't already know. And then you, you tap globalization on top of that, the fact that we've outsourced most of the remaining manufacturing jobs that we did have. And, and I think that there is a big education gap, too. And I, I really feel like there are a lot of jobs in the tech sector, but we need to adequately educate people and people who want to be willing to take on tech roles um, in this new economy. And I think it is a challenge because you're asking people to look at tech and look at healthcare when in the past life, manufacturing was was the thing. And it is a shift. And, and I don't think that employees should bear the brunt of that. I think that companies should be out there paying for, for educating people. Anyone who wants to jump, jump on board. Yeah, no, um, you, you were kind of talking about it earlier on how with this innovation, you are allowed to be more creative, right? And, and history has shown that, you know, when we started to hunt and, and agriculture, we had more time to, to do science or mathematics. So I'm definitely a believer that, like I've, I've always a firm believer if one door closes and another opens. Like there's like, I'm not gonna say there's perfect balance in the universe, but there's a balance, right? And as, as some industries close, new ones do develop. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a, a firm believer in that. And I think there are going to be those that get left behind. Uh, yeah. They, they're not willing to change. They're not willing to adapt. And you know what? That's, that's nothing but Darwinism, right? That's just some, pe that's just some people, um, let's just face it. Well, we're going through a, a, an evolution of sorts in the way we communicate and the way we do business. So we are evolving in a sense. Yeah, it's not everyone loves change. I get that. Um, you, you, we've, we've stripped people of their way of life, their livelihoods. I'm thinking particularly of the Rust Belt and all of this. And to some degree in, in, the, in the bread basket too, in agriculture. And it is tough, but yeah, there, there are jobs out there. But it's going to require some out-of-the-box thinking. And I, and I hate to sit here from my perch and be saying that. Um, but I just, I think education, education, education and keeping an open mind about, Hey, what jobs are paying money out there? Like maybe I should be a dental hygienist. 
You know, like these are these are high paying jobs. You know, and, and so, or maybe I do want to work in, in IT or work in cloud. You know, or be some work in some kind of service. You know, uh, based job. I mean, again, it's just follow the money, follow the opportunities. Yeah, and I think there's a, especially with with the current environment and everything that's going on, um, and the accessibility to knowledge. And you can watch so so many YouTube videos and, and learn so many things. And 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 what, now it's like, what's your excuse? Like, oh, well, school's too expensive. Well, I mean, you could get the books. There's free school. There's free school. There's um, so many things that you can obtain without having to go to the library like i remember growing up you had, a, you had a paper dude you went to the library like yeah it's not an all or nothing thing i mean it's not i can't you know, i can't go to school or i need to go to a four-year i mean a lot of people you know community college and technical skills can get you to that six-figure job or that high five-figure paying job with very minimal cost and i and i and, and i think it, that should be explored more um it's tough. I mean, globalization, this whole debate, I mean, so much change has happened. And I do think there will be some nearshoring as a result of COVID. I think it's shown how easily global supply chains can be disrupted. I don't know if you saw this, but when COVID first happened, grocery stores were just running out of stuff. Yeah. You can't find garlic. Yeah. No, because so much of it's produced in China. And there's just like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You couldn't find all kinds of European products. Like things you just, just like all of them. You know, just like things you're used to getting, where all of a sudden we're gone. And so I do think, and not just, I'm talking about food, but like just component parts of, of automobiles and, and technology. I computer parts. Computer products, all the microchips. Yeah. There was a big issue with microchips, I think. So I do think that there will be some, some nearshoring, particularly for high tech and very valuable stuff, maybe pharmaceutical stuff. Um, so I don't think manufacturing, I think manufacturing is far from dead in this country, but I think it will be high value add stuff. Stuff that might require some education and stuff in addition to the, uh, you know, to your, to your everyday skills. Yeah, you, I mean, you did you did mention outsourcing, but I think there there is like a shift um, to to bring uh, bring manufacturing here, bring bring all the the work here to America, and I mean, <laughs> kind of by force, right? With with COVID, like it's like, oh well. Let's bring everybody, come back home. Everybody, so everyone's here. You know, some countries aren't letting us in, so we can't get it anyways. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we are moving to, like, this shift of, okay, we're, we're, we have this demand, right, for, for all these new technologies that are we need. So we need things to get built here. We don't want to deal with, uh, you know, another issue where we import another virus i mean let's just call it what it is this it, this virus was not started here it came over here somehow if maybe there was more things produced here where things weren't being imported something i, I don't know but yeah well it didn't surprise me it comes from china because that that's the population center of the world you know it just makes sense that it would come from from there because the eurasian continent i mean they're historically really proficient at creating uh, disease and virus because of that reason. Simple population, <laughs> yeah. simple numbers. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I completely agree. Um, well, Justin, um, 
It was a pleasure, man. I, I really enjoyed it, man. Uh, I didn't know where this conversation was going to go. <laughs> I loved it. Thanks for the opportunity, Victor. But I, I enjoyed it. Uh, well, folks, uh, you'll have a good one.